podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. On this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with a man who was one of the early wave of Aussies to make it in Hollywood, even if you're not as familiar with his name as, say, Mel Gibson or Nicole Kidman. And by the way, the Oscar-winning cinematographer Dean Semler has worked with both of them. He shot Nicole Kidman in her career breakthrough film Dead Calm and worked with the young Mel Gibson in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the movie Once We Were Soldiers, and then came back to work for Mel Gibson when he directed Apocalypto. Dean's other films include Dances with Wolves, which earned him an Oscar, City Slickers, where I first met him on the Santa Fe set back in 1991, and In the Land of Milk and Honey, which was Angelina Jolie's directorial debut. Dean and his wife Annie invited me into their home in the Pacific Palisades of LA. And once we got settled in, he cracked out a little notebook to remind him of all the stories he was keen to tell me. So get ready for Dean Semler. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up and what kind of dreams you had of what you wanted to be when you grew up. I grew up in a fabulous part of Australia, still my favourite part of Australia, the Riverland in South Australia, in a little country town called Renmark. Dad was a welder there, Mum worked in a local store. I went to an agricultural school there where I wanted to study oenology, winemaking, because that's a lot of what happened around there. The quality of life was so damn good there, you know, and it was beautiful. I had, I just liked, I liked the feeling of being out there. I used to get on a bike and ride out and, or sit by the river or ride to where I could see the horizon and I just liked that, you know. And then I, was, I think I was about 14 and I was given a still camera. I, had, I didn't expect it. I didn't ask for it. And it was a tiny little coronet, I think, with a fancy little flash on it. And uh, I started taking black and white stills, but... Um, we had to get them processed at the camera shop and it was quite expensive and the film was expensive so, and we didn't have any money. Uh, so I couldn't afford it much but I really enjoyed seeing those results. Yeah, so that, was, that started an interest in photography and, uh, but I had no idea and no inclination to, uh, to be a photographer or, and I'd never heard of a cine cameraman or a cinematographer, never. I finished school. I'd, my father asked me uh, if I wanted to join the railways. There was a position in the railways in Renmark for a junior clerk. If I was in the railways, I could get free travel and so could my family anywhere in Australia on the train. So that was a good enough reason for everybody. So I joined the railways as a junior clerk and uh, in the meantime I'd applied for a position as a props boy at Channel 9 in Adelaide. I had no idea what a props boy was, no idea. I hadn't seen television. We didn't have television. Had you Uh, seen movies? I'd seen movies at the cinema. We used to go to the movies regularly every Saturday. And lo and behold, within a few weeks, I got a telegram back from Rex Heading, the production manager, saying, you can start. And I didn't know what to do. Dad didn't want me to do it. He didn't want me, uh, you know, mixing with those arty-farty, fancy-pants people in the city, let alone actors and people. And, you know, even though he hadn't seen television, he imagined what it would have been like. And uh, But I went against his will, and it was very sad because I, I remember leaving and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going against Dad's will for really the first time. And... I hope it works out. Well, a few months later, there was a live, all the commercials were live. Everything was live in those, it was fantastic. Three cameras, black and white. It was so exciting. And the props boys, what we had to do was to 
present all the, all the props, the properties, like the things that actors handle. And there was a commercial that came on with, I remember with Lionel Williams, it was a tip-top bread commercial and he was standing facing camera. I was one of the props boys, white overalls with my name on it, Dean Semler, Channel 9, proud as punch. And uh, while he was doing the commercial, a group of us props boys went into the bread stand loaded with bread behind him and we all st we stole the bread. So at the end of the commercial, he turned around and says, see you, I told you, that's popular, it's great, tip-top bread. Well, I thought Dad and Mum ought to see this somehow. So I rang the neighbours. We didn't have a phone. I rang the neighbours and said, do you mind if Mum and Dad come and have a look at it? And they said, sure. So they invited Mum and Dad over. Mum and Dad got dressed up to go and watch television next door. Dad saw it, the snowy thing. You could barely make it out. I wouldn't <laughs> think the image was great at all, but he thought I was famous straight away and everything was fine from then on. <laughs> but that was, you know, it was a humble start. And, and then that led to being a news cameraman and yep. you got to have incredible adventures as a news cameraman. You covered the Beatles coming to Adelaide. Um, bushfires and... You know, the things that have the Beatles, you mentioned the Beatles, I filmed their arrival in Adelaide. Adelaide was, I think, had the largest turnout population-wise of Beatles anywhere in the world, 350,000 people. Mm. That's almost a third of the population of Adelaide. Wow. Turned up, streets were blocked. I was in amongst it. I was with them. I was up rubbing shoulders with them and the, and the Lord Mayor. We did a press conference with them and filmed their concert at night, which was just a blast and a half. You know, we were all wearing our little skinny suits and ties and pointy-toe shoes and it was fabulous. It was just fabulous. Anyway. So then you worked your way through television and documentaries and... We, we've skipped over a, a large, very important period of my life at Film Australia. Oh. I, I, that was, it was the most wonderful experience of my life. Don McAlpine was the chief cameraman there and he asked me to go and join after I'd done two years at the ABC in Sydney. And um, uh, I had wonderful experiences. I mean, the documentaries we made there, uh, I was so lucky to be able to do it. I did a lot of ethnographic work with Australian Oh, set in Sydney? Set in Sydney, yeah. Right, so you'd gone, you'd moved at We'd that moved point from... Sydney, yeah. I was given a job at the ABC and Annie and I ran away <laughs> and went to Sydney. We eloped and went over there and, and began our new lives in Sydney where she worked in makeup and hair again and then got work in theatre and dancing, etc. And um, you were shooting documentaries for a long time for them, right? I was nine years at Film Australia and it was just fabulous. It was fantastic. My first opportunity to shoot wide, big screen stuff for the cinema because we used to shoot cinema shorts, you know, 20 or 30 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was one of those shorts that George Miller had seen that got me the job of, to do Road Warrior, a film called Steam Train Passes. Road Warrior was so exciting for me. It's, it's still the most talked about movie I have ever done. Uh, in Australia or here. I mean, hardly a week or two goes by and somebody doesn't ask about the road warrior and how many stunt people were killed, <laughs> which they weren't, of course. The whole compound. This is a land that prays for a hero. Well, if anyone's going to get in there, it's going to be you. Uh... This is Mad Max 2. It was groundbreaking because of its ingenious director, George Miller, and being able to just go whole hog with it. I'd done a couple of features and a lot of documentaries, but I had never done an action film like that. And I learned an enormous amount, as George had learned doing Mad Max 1, the first one. Mm -hmm. He knew all the tricks by now. He knew 
which way to go, whether you go left or right or where to frame and camera speeds, etc. Working with George was phenomenal. I learned so much every day. And there was that young bloke called Mel Gibson. Young Mel, yeah, Mel was there. He had about two words in the whole movie, I think. <laughs> but, uh, I forgot that. That's and, true. And he was good, yeah. And uh, the other little hero was a little Emil Minty who played the little feral kid. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about him. They loved him. You know. After Road Warrior, I did several others down there, including The Light Horseman and Coca-Cola mm. Kid. And uh, then we shot Dead Calm up in Hamilton Island with Nicole, who was 19 years old. She was a baby. Uh, we shot off Hamilton Island for quite a few weeks. But um, first time I saw Road Warrior in a theatre, it was in one of the theatres in Sydney and I remember sitting fairly close to the middle front and the soundtrack came up and the whole place was rumbling and vibrating. It was such an extraordinary, exhilarating, fabulous, proud moment, you know. That that movie must have been a calling card for that you. That movie opened up so many doors over here for me. I, I came over here and immediately you're recognised and appreciated and, you know, sort of, admired, I guess, for the work you've done and you're in demand sort of, whereas before you weren't. But it was time to get an agent in Hollywood and I had this guy called Creighton Smith chasing me a little. So I went to uh, Los Angeles and I'm staying in a hotel. Creighton came and it was a Saturday night. He had scripts and notes and this, that. He said, I've got meetings set up for you next week for all the studios with other production managers, etc. But you should read this script. He said, "Uh, this one needs to go fairly soon. You should read that. So I read it that night. And it was cocktail. Cut to two. This is two days later now. This is my new agent. Two days later, uh, Annie and I are the only passengers on a private jet on our way to Jamaica. And she's eating strawberries and sucking on <laughs> champagne and stuff. And I said, you know, this, this Creighton guy, he might be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified because I was replacing a crew that the director, there were sort of creative differences. We flew in and we were going to get a night shoot that night, the day I arrived in mid-afternoon. And and then I met Roger Donaldson, the uh, director, and Roger came up to me and said, G'day, mate. How are you? G'day, Roger. How are you? Brian Brown came up. He said, G'day, mate. How are you? G'day, Brian. How are you? Tom Cruise came up and said, G'day, mate. How are you? <laughs> uh, so I did Cocktail. We shot that in... Uh, in Jamaica, and then we moved to Toronto where it was minus 20 and I was in my Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> well, that's kind of ironic. You went from working with Nicole Kidman to Tom Cruise before they knew about each other. Exactly, yeah. In fact, it was dead calm that Tom saw when he, yes. uh, you know, lusted after her, I guess. <laughs> you were had a little bit involved with all of that. They were both wonderful to work with. Tom was fabulous to work with, goodness me. He was, he was one of those actors who was always there, always on time, always prepared, always always giving more than what you'd expect. Nicole was fabulous too. I mean, she was, a, you know, a babe in the woods as we sort of were on Dead Calm. But Phil got wonderful performances out of her and the other actors. She's a pretty top lady. You know. Now, Razorback was another one of those classic. A razor, Razorback was a... a little low-budget, $4 million or something in Australia, directed by Russell Mulcahy. It was, a, it was basically the story of a giant pig the size of a cow that terrorises the country and kills a couple of people and finally gets his wicked way at the end. But, sort of uh, like Jaws but with a pig. Yeah, Jaws but a pig, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I shot that and I, I didn't, 
I was very proud of it. I got the AFI award for it. In fact, I was shooting Thunderdome with George. We were in Cooperpedia a little while later and there was a call with this little motel in Cooperpedia and Annie was inside and I was outside talking to George and Annie said, Dean, you're on it on the phone. I said, who is it? She said, Stephen. I said, Stephen who? She said, Stephen Spielberg. <laughs> I said, come on. No, she said, it's him, it's him. So I went in and I spoke. He'd just seen Razorback and he loved it. And he'd also hurt his ankle and he wanted to talk to George about <laughs> But anyway, uh, continuing on from where we left off after Dead Calm and doing Cocktail, Cocktail, I went straight on to what was going to be the time of my life, uh, my first Western in America, Young Guns 1, with the Brat Pack, with Charlie and Kiefer and... Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou Diving Phillips, yeah. They were just... It was a fantastic experience. So they were the Brat Pack. Were they really a bratty pack? <laughs> oh, they were wonderful. You know, they're all they're all kids having a great time and uh, great actors too. All of them and great doing great physical work um, and loving every minute on it. It was just a wonderful thing to do. But in Young Guns, there oh. was a first AD, first assistant director. He's the guy that runs the set, organise it for the director. Right? They were all Hell's Angels out of Oakland. The real deal. Hardly any teeth left. Beard. <laughs> Leather, chains, knives. Uh, well, Chuck Myers was the first AD and he said to me, uh, you know, he said, what, uh, what other movies did you do in Australia? I know you did The Road Warrior. What else did you do? And I said, well, I did the you know, Coke Gullet Kid and Dead Calm and I did Razor. He said, you did Razorback? I said, yeah, I did Razorback. He said, boys, here's the man that did Razorback. It's our favourite film. It's our favourite film. Come and say. <laughs> so I arranged a screening at the hotel in Santa Fe. We got a print or a video or something and we screened it on a Sunday. We had lots of beer and lots of pig feet, pigs this, pigs that, pig crisps. And uh, it was a wonderful time. Everyone had a lovely time. Two nights later we're shooting in Santa Fe and night shooting and I uh, go to put my light meters away. I had a canvas bag, put my hand in and there was something in there. And I put the light on and it was a freshly killed pig's head. I thought, holy hell, I thought it was McGrip playing a joke on me, but Chuck said, no, no, we just wanted to show our appreciation for the screening. He said, oh, he loved it and uh, we were going to put it in your bed, but we thought your wife mightn't like it very much. <laughs> Chuck, if you oh, the Godfather's bed, got nothing on you. <laughs> <laughs> if, you <laughs> if you put it in the bed, Chuck, it would have met your match, I tell you. Dances with Wolves, that came around the same time, I think. I had a call from Creighton, the agent's to uh, meet with, to read this script, I read it. It was very long, but good, called Dances with Wolves. And uh, I I went along to meet Kevin and Jim Wilson. I don't know what they thought about me, but we had, we had a, you know, I think Kevin later on said he was looking for somebody who was going to be a survivor under pretty tough conditions. He'd seen what I'd done with Dead Carmen, but Mad Max films and Light Horseman and stuff. I like to keep harmony on a set. I really like to keep harmony on a set. And George has always said, there's something about the Aussie crews. Mm. He said, I call it the circle of grace around the camera where they respect each other, they respect the director, they respect the actors, and they're aware of how, how the actors and everybody are feeling around that close circle. But good people. Kevin was wonderful. And um, then uh, you had that experience with Kevin and then you did Waterworld. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I said to the producers before we shot that that uh, they should look at 
Road Warrior again because it's very, very similar to Road Warrior, except it's on water. Yeah. And it's going to take twice as long to shoot. The future. The polar ice caps have melted, and the Earth lies beneath a watery grave. Kevin Costner, Dennis Hopper, Gene Triplehorn. Waterworld. When you're shooting on land and you've got vehicles moving, they have a place to start and a place to stop. You can see, you can have a rock or a bush or a something. On the water, you don't. So, you know, take them with the current and the tides and the wind and the... It's difficult. I'm not going to say it wasn't enjoyable. It really was enjoyable. I mean, hell, we were in Hawaii, on the big island of Hawaii, for five months or something or six months. Uh, it was tough on Kevin. I think he was happy with it at the end and it, it made us money back after all the rumours. It was a terrible, like, uh, controversy around it when it came yeah. out. It was, what, Kevin's folly and people yeah, calling it all right. kinds of things Kevin like that. Kevin's gate. Kevin's yeah. gate, that's yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you couldn't tell any difference working no. with him on either of those two no. movies. It's not like when you work on a movie you think, oh, this is going to be really terrible or this is no. going to be. You don't know. I mean, with Dancers with Wolves, um, excuse me, with Dancers with Wolves, we, we did some makeup and hair and wardrobe tests and I put a track down, a little dolly track with a camera on it. I lit it fairly dramatically and we had a little wind machine, a little e-fan to blow the feathers and the hair a little bit to give it a bit of life. And it was the first time we had seen any of the actors in their full wardrobe and makeup. We just shot it all and it was fine. It seemed beautiful. And then we got to screen it. And Kevin loved to play music. He loved to play music over any... We never watched anything without music or sound. And with a buffalo and with a wolf, there was hours and hours and hours and hours of film. He used to put music behind it. Well, he did so with these camera uh, wardrobe makeup tests. They're normally technical. Everyone looks at them and says, well, I think the button should be red or this should be, we can make this a bit lighter. We looked at it and he played music from some of the classic westerns, including Lonesome Dove and Man from Snowy River. Hmm. The lights came on. Everyone had been crying. Everyone. Wow. Everyone had tears in their eyes. It was so powerful, so emotional. And that was a sign, I guess, that was good, but we had a long way to go. Well, if you're crying just doing the tests, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. there's a lot, right? Yeah. Well, though, you won the Oscar um, for Dances with Wolves and yes. I would imagine back then it was very unusual for an Australian in Hollywood to actually take home an Oscar. There weren't that many yes, of them. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. What, it, was. what was that whole experience like for you? It was a fabulous night. I mean, just walking in there with all those people, hearing the music of the themes... I was up against the, the top cinematographers on the planet, for God's sake, this little kid from Renmark, you know? And when they called my name, I just leapt out of my cheek like a startled rabbit and went up on stage. And the Oscar goes to Dean Semler, Dances with Wolves. It's a bit like facing 3,000 buffalo. <laughs> my wife, Annie, the blonde bombshell from Down Under, thanks. My daughter Ingrid, hi. Thanks for your love, your patience. I'm a very proud little Aussie up here tonight to accept this. Um, and I thank you all. I thank the Academy and I thank America. Thanks. 
And you and had then, to pack that little gold man in a suitcase and get him back to Australia. As soon as all the festivities were over, we flew back Qantas. And that was first class. And um, Annie and I were up there and the steward came up and said, uh, Mr. Semler, do you have it with you? I said, what? She said, the, the Oscar. I said, yeah, I have. Uh, she said, you think it'd be prudent if you showed everybody on the aeroplane? <laughs> I said, oh, I don't I don't know that people. You know, they've been flying for eight hours, the toilets are overflowing and they're all sleepy and grumpy and they don't want somebody holding a trophy in front of their face. She said, I think you won't find me. They will appreciate it. So I took it around the plane. <laughs> they loved it. They photographed it, they clapped it. Even everyone in first class stood up and clapped and cheered and I thought, wow, this this really means something down here. That's a very moving story about oh, the fair. way people responded to you. Oh, it was so special. Yeah. So special. I mean, you're in a very elite group of people. It's growing a little bigger now, the Australians doing yeah, so well. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, to be at the forefront and to have that experience and yeah. share it with, you know, look around the room, there aren't that many of you that were, yeah. you know, at that level in, in Hollywood. You could have knocked me over with a fella. <laughs> Did I tell you about Annie and George tap dancing? No. There's so many more stories. <laughs> it was before Dead Calm. We were doing, you know, the Mad Max films and we did Bodyline and television series down there. Annie used to take tap dancing class, teach tap dancing classes on the weekend. George came along and we did a little routine and it was fabulous. You know, we just loved it. Annie said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choreograph a routine. We'll do it at the rap party, right? I said, yeah, you can do, do it without me. I won't, I won't be in it. I'm not going to be putting glitter in my hand, dancing in front of a grips. <laughs> in the world. Of course I did. You know, she went out <laughs> on that. And George and I uh, tap danced this little um, routine that Annie taught us. He said later that he enjoyed it so much, it was such an inspiration, such a wonderful feeling he had never experienced and he was so surprised that he could even do it. He said it planted a seed. Happy feet. Happy feet. That's what of course. I mean. So he thanks her for happy feet. Coming up on Aussies in Hollywood, Dean talks about his long work relationship with Mel Gibson and the prank he couldn't resist pulling on Adam Sandler during one of their many movies together. How did Mel Gibson come back into your life as a director? As opposed long, to someone long, that you'd long, long, shot. Long, long time. We did Thunderdome, of course. Yeah. And uh, then it was many, many years. It was over here. And uh, actually I was approached by his company to do Braveheart, but I had a commitment to Costner uh, for Waterworld at the time. I, I, I had a moral thing with Kevin who'd asked me about it. Uh, I didn't get to do Braveheart, obviously, but then it was We Were Soldiers with uh, 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 Randy Wallace, the director, and I remember the first time I'd seen Mel in maybe, might have been almost 15 years or more, I don't know. And we were doing makeup tests down in Fort Benning. And I'd set it up, I'd lit and had the camera ready. I was ready to go and Mel walked in. He said, G'day, mate, nothing's changed much, really, has it? <laughs> so it was like that, you know. He was, it was wonderful. I love watching that guy work. What makes him so special? He's a damn good actor. I mean, he puts himself, he becomes that part. He is. Gutsy as all hell, he's funny as a circus, uh, and he's scary. All of that, you know, he can be whatever you want. Mm. In shooting Apocalypto with him, it was that's another story. Well, yeah, that sounded like a massively challenging film in every way. I got a call from Mel in 
about 2004, saying, do you know anything about digital cinematography? And I said, uh, yeah, I've done a few tests on Panavision's new Genesis camera. I know a little bit about it. He said, is it any good? And I said, yeah, it looks as though it's very promising. If you want to have a look at it, I can take you out to Panavision. We'll do the dog and pony show out there, which we did. We went out there and we looked at side by side, intercut. You didn't know whether it was film. You didn't know whether it was digital. And you couldn't tell. And so we went and, we went and sat out on the lawn in Panavision. And Mel said, I got this story. And he acted it out for me there. <laughs> you know, sitting down, you know, we just well, sitting, we, he could acted. have sold tickets. There was no, yeah, there was no, uh, there was no script he had there. Uh, so he told me the story, and I was blown away by it. And I went to shoot Click immediately after that. Mel wasn't ready to go. For some reason, his shoot was pushed, and in the meantime, Sandler's film came up. Click. Uh, well, you couldn't think of two more different things to be no, exactly. offered jobs on, right? Yeah. And so, Click was the first film that we shot. That was shot in Hollywood on a digital camera. You've He's worked. You've, you've worked on quite a few films now with Adam Sandler. Yes, I have. Yeah. What What's that like? Is he? Adam is is good. He's very funny. We're shooting in Savannah on a film called The Do Over, and the the location was Savannah, and then a couple of weeks in Puerto Rico. I had a, a back problem that was becoming more serious. It was like I was in a lot of pain, but I had to get a replacement and. Uh, and I had to leave the shoot, which I have never done in my life before. I've never left a picture. I know they wanted somebody that I trusted, but it also had to be somebody that the, the company approved. I chose my old colleague, um, Brad Shield, another Australian. I said, Brad, when you come down there, you've got to play along with a little gag for me. Yes, sure. Great. So this is what happened. We're night shooting in a sort of a hospital set and everybody's there in their chairs, et cetera, et cetera. And Brad comes in and I had the props guys give him a patch. So he's got a patch over one eye and he's blinking madly with the other eye. <laughs> and I said to Adam and everybody, this is your new director of photography. And their jaws dropped and they thought, what the? But then they saw through it straight away pretty much and he took over. Yeah. <laughs> Then I did click and I was happy to get used to the digital camera on that. And then by the time I got to doing Apocalypto, which was immediately after that. And you were all in the jungle for a long time on we're in Apocalypto. The, we were like eight or nine months in a place called uh, in Veracruz and supposedly it's a headquarters for witchcraft in all South America. But it was a, a beautiful jungle, privately owned rainforest. And we soon learned why they called it a rainforest. <laughs> it rained, it rained, it rained. Trees crashed, 80-foot-high trees crashed down with the weight of water. And also you'd walk around and you'd find little bits of tape, gaffer tape on trees and things. They'd shot Medicine Man there before with um, Sean Connery. Sean Connery, mm -hmm. yeah. And the actors were wonderful. Rudy, who played the lead, and Mel was fantastic on it. Goodness me, he... Tricks that both he and I learnt on the Mad Max films. He taught one of the actors to run backwards five steps and it was <laughs> it was a shot of a spiky ball landing in a tree by his head, which you couldn't do. It was very dangerous to do. So we put put it in the tree and the guy ran backwards out of it and then they pulled it out. <laughs> so it's, it's in the movie. Angelina Jolie, when did you first meet her? How did this relationship begin? I worked with Angelina on a movie called The Bone Collector. She was just brimming, about to burst out of her minor roles, you know. I had a call from her saying, I've got a script. In the land of milk and honey? In the land of milk and honey, yeah. Would you like to read it? I said, yeah, sure. 
So I read it and she said, who do you think I should get to shoot it? Who would do it like you? And I said, me. She said, you'll shoot it? And I said, I'd, I'd love to. She said, she hung up and literally danced around the room and I said, I'd do it. Remember how things were before the battles? Am I a prisoner? You're not a prisoner if you want to be here. But Angelina was wonderful on that. We finished up shooting it all in Budapest, a wonderful city of Budapest. She was a first-time director again, and, uh, you know, I got a big old shoulder for people to lean on if they, if they so want. <laughs> and... Um, we shared it and, you know, she'd, she'd come up with a plan every day and we'd put that into practice and add to or subtract from or whatever. And then I worked with her on Maleficent as well where she just played the big star. That was fabulous for her too. And you look at look at the times these people spend in makeup before they get onto the set. With Angelina, she had prosthetics you know, for her cheekbones raised up in that and one on her nose and the horns fitted and, uh, you know, they got to sit in that chair for a long time. No one more so than did Eddie Murphy on The Nutty Professor. That guy is an absolute, absolute genius. And I say that above any other actors I've worked with. He, he played those five characters. on the. He would be in makeup like four or five hours every morning. Imagine sitting in a chair for four or five hours. And then he would come out and we'd do that scene as his character that day. Next day he'd be the mother, the next day he'd be the father, the next day he'd be the brother. And the final day he'd be himself out of makeup as Eddie Murphy. And unbelievable. I love that guy. He was so good. <laughs> but he was one of, as was Jim Carrey. Jim was another guy who was extraordinary. You worked with him on uh, Bruce Almighty? Bruce Almighty, yeah. So there's a lot, when you, the, the genius that people talk about with Jim Carrey and Eddie Murphy, it, it, there is something that you really oh, see yeah. happen to them oh, on sets. Yeah. Kind of like what Robin Williams used exactly, to be doing. Yeah. Jim Carrey is, gets progressively better every take, every take, every take, every take. Do another one, do another one, do one. And he'll do seven or eight or nine and you'll see at the end of it how he's brought it from a really good level, the way it was written up to something up there, which is he's absolutely fantastic. It was just a, such an honour and a thrill to be able to sit down next to a camera six feet away from this guy watching him perform. Well, you've been around legends but all, most of your career. Yeah. And one of my favourites is... Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course. Yeah, with Arnold. Arnold said to me, I having breakfast one morning, and I wasn't big like this, but Arnold said, uh, how tall are you? <laughs> I said, I'm six foot one, Arnold. He said, you would be taller if you weren't so round. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like your wife has been a pretty in pretty big influence oh, totally. in your career, not just your life, because she sounded like she was your cheerleader and was the one that would yeah. get you to say yes when you'd say no. Totally, totally. I, I've, I wouldn't be here, I don't think, without her. Like, um, you know, she's always there to guide me, always there to help me. Like, I know you love the script in Lithuania, but I think we should do the one in Hawaii. <laughs> that sounds fair enough to me. Yeah, exactly. There's also, oh, shit, I'll tell you what, we didn't talk about and this is, this is one of the major moments and events in my life. I was shooting in Winnipeg. 
on the set one day, this package delivered to me, a FedEx package, and I opened it up when I got back home, and there were 22 letters in there from school children in Renmark in South Australia, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids. They had all seen Angelina present me with the award on television mm. or in the papers, in the local papers down there, and they said, Dear Mr Semler, my name is, you know, Helen Sophie. Um, I am nine years old and uh, we want you to come down here and teach us how to make movies. And every single child wrote a letter congratulating me, eight or nine-year-old kids from my hometown. So I answered them all back, every single one of them. I wrote them all back. And then they wrote back again when they gave more information, you know. Dad works at Woolworths and Mum works at the packing shed with the oranges. And then there were pictures and, and I thought, I've got to go down there. But we, uh, I, I, I drove to Renmark, into the old hotel, stayed there. Next morning went to the school, we're at the Catholic school, you'll be happy about that, <laughs> where I met uh, the principal and we had a fantastic day. I had a slate made up with the Renmark River Rascals, a Panavision slate, and we got them all to do a slate and draw stuff and I made this little film of them throwing darts at the teacher and it was then that uh, I, I, I just thought, I just felt special. You know, it wasn't like another award, but it was beyond that. And on top of that off, that next afternoon, the mayor gave me the keys to Renmark with a ceremony, with a civic reception. And that was so special to you. That must have been an emotional experience thinking, I was this kid in this yeah. place and look where I ended right. up. And the ironical thing was that the, the town has changed a lot in, you know, 45 years or whatever it was, that uh, the location of the, of the, of the uh, where the awards were given, the Civic Centre, whatever it is called, yeah, Civic Centre, which is a beautiful modern building, was on the exact spot to within a, a square yard of where my office was in a hot tin shed when the railway came through there. The railway's gone now. Wow. It was in exactly the same spot. That's right there, right there. Wow. There was a shed and it was hot. <laughs> and you could still be working for the railway. I would have been station master. <laughs> I think you made a good choice there. <laughs> so I think that's the perfect note to end on. Dean Semler, thank you very much for giving so generously of your time and your memory and your great stories for our podcast. Thank you. Many more stories if we want to come back. We might take you up on that. <laughs> to present this year's Lifetime Achievement Award, please welcome Angelina Jolie. Thank you very much. A film can be shot without an actor. It can even be shot without a director. It's not ideal, but it can be done. But a film cannot be shot without a director of photography. Without him or her, we would quite literally be in the dark. I have had the great privilege of working with many of you here tonight. And I am grateful to you and to everyone in this room for what you put on the screen. As an audience member, you have shown me the world in all its splendor and at times in all its darkness. Through the delicate interplay of light and shadows, you make emotional and physical landscapes come to vivid life, expanding our understanding not only of cinema, but of the human condition itself. 
One of my first experiences with the DP was on a film where I was a cop looking for clues in a dark room. He came up to me and said, there are whiteboards hidden throughout the area you're going to walk in. He handed me a flashlight and he said, find them. Light yourself. That was the first of many things Dean Semler would teach me. <laughs> Years later, I had a chance to direct my first film. It was a small film and I was a new director, so I was aware I couldn't get Dean. But I sent him the script and I called him for advice. Who could shoot it like you would shoot it, I asked. And he answered, me. And after the shock wore off and I realized that he'd agreed to work on it himself, I hung up and I'm not ashamed to say I danced around the room. I couldn't believe my luck. And I was right. He guided me and supported me through that film. He would do wonderful things like just dropping clues for me to pick up. I would suggest a shot and he would prepare it. But at the same time, he would be playing with light from another angle with another suggested frame as if it was just for fun. And I would notice and say, that, that looks amazing. What, can we, can we do it that way? And casually he'd say, sure. <laughs> and so the days went on. And every day was a day I learned something from Dean. Beyond just his eye and his talent, he is a special man. There is nothing more sacred on a film set than trust. And Dean inspires the kind of trust that we all dream of. And because of that, Artists often do their best work when they're working with him. After our chat, Dean gave me a tour of the house and even let me hold his Oscar. And yes, they are really heavy. As you heard in the episode, Dean couldn't resist playing the video of Angie giving him the American Society of Cinematographers Lifetime Achievement Award. And once we heard the speech, you can understand why he's so proud. Dean's a true legend in the game and he's paved the way for so many other Aussies in Hollywood. On the next episode of Aussies in Hollywood. From home and away to Pirates of the Caribbean, Brenton Thwaites walks us through his rise to stardom and just what it was like working with Johnny Depp. I think the main thing that I got from Johnny is just his fearlessness, you know. What I saw in Johnny was just a guy who was constantly trying new jokes and new things and... I remember being very nervous and, and you know, he, he, he's very calming. That's next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood is recorded in LA for Podcast One. Recording is by Andrew Sink. Audio production by Alex Mitchell and Nick Slater. Produced by Tim Dunlop. Executive producer is Jamie Cho. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.